This is Science 2034 Live, and I'm Adam Belmar. 20 years ago, the Science Coalition was formed to strengthen federal support for basic scientific and engineering research. We tell the stories of what federally funded research has made possible and what will be reality 20 years from now. This program was recorded live in the Rayburn House Office Building in Washington, D.C. on June 24, 2015, at an event held in conjunction with the House Science and National Labs Caucus. I was joined by a panel of visionary scientists from across the nation who have all contributed to science2034.org. And so let's get started with a round of introductions, and I want to start with, uh, with Matt Terrell from the University of Chicago, the Institute of Molecular Engineering, and the Argonne National Lab. Matt, tell us about your area of science and what you believe will be possible 20 years from now. Thank you, Ed. In, in my own lab, we work on the broad area of nanomedicine, but particularly applied to heart disease. Um, what we do is design and build nanoparticles that can circulate in the bloodstream and be on patrol for particular kinds of pathologies. About 800,000 people have heart attacks every year, and about 500,000 of them are first heart attacks, and about 15% of those result in sudden death. The first symptom of heart disease is death. That happens when a particular thing happens, namely the atherosclerotic plaque, the lesion of the heart disease, ruptures and creates a blood clot. And what we have designed and are trying to perfect and deliver are nanoparticles that can detect that form of atherosclerosis that is particularly dangerous. Uh, Federico Cimarella from the Northern Illinois University. Tell us your area of science and, and your vision for where that will be in 2034. Sure. So uh, we uh, at Northern uh, work on advanced manufacturing. So we're looking to use uh, lasers to enable manufacturing in a capacity for different aspects. So 3D printing is one area that maybe a lot of people heard about. We actually do 3D printing with metals. So we're looking and trying to understand how we can make products that are better, stronger, lighter, faster and really trying to come up with new ways, so not to replace any other manufacturing, but really to complement other areas of manufacturing, so another tool in the toolbox, if you will. So we envision this technology and other, uh, other things like it to really help and spur economic growth in this country and kind of put us back on the map as leaders in producing value-added products. And Angie Pinier from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Um, yeah, so my lab works um, generally in the areas of tissue engineering and gene delivery, but um, the, the project that I'm excited about and that I've blogged about um, involved um, the development of nanoparticles for oral DNA vaccination. And so what we envision for this is that typical or traditional vaccines usually use some sort of a live or attenuated virus or bacteria. And those um, have production issues. Um, they also have issues with how long it takes for us to actually re respond to a pandemic. Um, but they also have issues with how we actually mobilize them, mobilize those vaccines globally in terms of they have to have some sort of refrigeration or freezing um, during their storage and transport. And so DNA vaccines, what, what they entail is you actually deliver a gene from a pathogen, but we never deal with the pathogen in production or in administration to the patient. And what that does is we can actually chemically synthesize 
use these genes without having to deal with the pathogens so we can mobilize a vaccine much quicker. We can have a pandemic outbreak and we can go to the lab, synthesize the DNA vaccine. Um, and, and, and DNA is a very hardy molecule. Um, you know, Jurassic World, right? We all know that DNA survives over millions of years. And so we actually don't need refrigeration um, for these DNA uh, nanoparticles. And so we can mobilize them globally. And so what we're working on in my lab is to try to understand how to deliver them orally. Because if we could do oral delivery, then we could also alleviate the need for medical personnel administration, which again helps us to would change our lives here in the United States because it would make vaccination quicker and easier, but it would be have a huge effect globally. All right. Justin Krepp is here with us from the University of Notre Dame. I'm an astrophysicist, and I, I build instruments uh, for the largest telescopes in the world. Um, our, our goal is to detect planets orbiting other stars, so-called exoplanets, and to uh, take images of those planets and get spectra of their atmospheres and figure out uh, if they have life. And I, and I think we're on the verge of discovering life elsewhere in the universe, and I think the United States should make that discovery. And Lean Kawas, who is the CEO of M3 Biotechnology, uh, a spin-out from Washington State University. Um, hello, I, I'm a pharmacologist and neuroscientist who did research at Washington State University. And the basic research that happened at Washington State University helped us create a technology that we spun out in M3. What we're working on at Washington State University and developing at M3 Biotechnology are therapies that are addressing huge unmet medical needs, uh, focusing right now on Alzheimer's, but the technology could penetrate other uh, diseases or in or conditions. Uh, we are working on activating growth factors. These are targets that control uh, the proliferative regeneration of tissues. So you can imagine the penetration of this technology, not only to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, but even normal aging, uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, wound healing. Uh, we're focusing right now on Alzheimer's because of the huge economical burden that this disease is creating and will continue to create uh, on the nation. Thank you. And Ken Hansen from Florida State University. So I'm a chemist and a material scientist that works on solar cell technology. So sometime in the last two months, uh, global energy production, approximately 1% of that was generated by solar energy technology. We just crossed, the, crossed that threshold. And so by 2034, hopefully that'll be above 20%. It should be above 20%. And that'll be achieved two different ways. One is making solar cells that are available now cheaper, more easy to distribute, and more efficient. But the alternative is the next generation of solar cells. And this is predominantly organic electronics as well as higher efficiency solar cells. And the nice part about organics is they're less expensive to manufacture, less expensive to process. They're not quite as efficient as they need to be, but that's where basic research right now is working to make them more efficient. An advantage of them also is that they're flexible and transparent. So you can imagine the glass on this window right here being a solar cell while still being able to see through it will change manufacturing, change the way we design buildings based on solar cell technology. So let there be no doubt that this is an exciting time to be pursuing science. We are indeed on the cusp of a great many things. And indeed, the research that is being conducted today that we're going to be talking about out of all of these labs, they're not only going to impact our lives 20 years from now, but way beyond that as well. But what's most important, I think, for all of us to recognize is that achievements like this require 
the right resources. And we're here in Rayburn on the Hill today talking about strong federal funding for basic scientific research. Uh, I, I want to make sure that everyone has at least the opportunity to refresh their talking points by the time they leave here today or have a conversation back in their offices and say, look, every time our member holds up his cell phone and talks about the technology over the last 20 years that's made this possible, we appreciate that that is not only true, but what comes next and putting a face and a narrative to what life in 2034 will look like is our objective. And so I want to invite you over the next hour or so to have questions and ask them. We'll solicit them during this period. But also I want to get a conversation going here among our visionaries uh, and encourage you if you're looking for more about what they've done, what they've said, and what their labs are working on, you can find all of that at science2034.org. Um, let me start with Angie. Um, Let's assume for a second that the advancements in science that you're talking about, the development of vaccines that are broken from the cold chain, um, that don't require storage, that have an ability to be moved the world over, comes to pass by 2034. Talk about the impact on daily lives and global health and the economy as you envision it. Sure. I, I think some of the the things the the benefits we would we would notice right away would be just a completely different strategy for vaccination in terms of you wouldn't be going to the doctor to get a shot you would just be able to take an oral pill and it would vaccinate you I think we also would feel um, a different feeling in the country when when pandemics do arise and they will continue to arise um, is that we won't have this fear we'll know well we have a vaccination strategy that we can mobilize within weeks within a lab and chemically synthesize it um, but we also will feel a difference in the world and that as you know if we create safer, healthier conditions worldwide, we feel that here at home as well. And so I think we'll have a world where, where you know, we have people right now today, millions of people are dying this year in parts of the world from disease that could be prevented with vaccines, but we just can't get the vaccines to them. And so so uh, I think that that would, that would have an impact. In terms of the economy, um, we would hopefully be able to reduce the cost of vaccines, which will also help to mobilize them globally. Yeah, Matt Terrell. Uh, well, I was just going to say, too, uh, reducing cost is a good thing, but there's also technologies and companies to be built in order right. to do this, which will provide jobs. The same is true in the in the nanotechnology for heart disease that I'm talking about, as well as the societal benefit of prolonging people's lives and productivity. Yeah, Matt, I, I'm wondering if you'd go a little bit deeper into the technology that you're working on, uh, specifically uh, you, you've talked a little bit about it as a diagnostic tool, but I have a sense that it also has a, uh, a delivery platform for other objectives in the, in the health sciences. Yeah, there's really three aspects that we can build into these kind of nanoparticles. One is the capacity. They're formed by a process known as self-assembly. That is, we build information into the molecule that causes these particles to spontaneously form in the, in the way we want them to. And they have uh, biological activities displayed on their surfaces that can target pathological tissue, that can enhance imaging capabilities so that you can see what's there, and possibly also deliver a therapeutic at the same time. So these would fall into the NIH jargon of theranostic nanoparticles, the clumsy word combining therapeutic and diagnostic. Uh, and, and we know how to do this, and we're, like I said, really focused on heart disease, but it carries over to cancer and other kinds of uh, conditions as well. 
I think one of the things that, that I want to make sure that we communicate to everybody in this room today is that these are not wild speculations. This is honest assessment of where the science and the investment exists today, thanks to the, 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 the prescience of members of Congress who continue to make investment in basic research at the federal level, federal level happen. Um, and so when we think uh, about conditions, neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, and we hear someone like Lean Kawas, who's the CEO of a biotech company, who's actually talking about realizing a cure potentially for diseases like this, it makes me want to beg the question to you of help us understand that that vision. 20 years from now, small molecules which can cause the body to repair itself is what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. So just being super wild about what would be like the reality of this technology in 20, 40 years. Now we understand the human uh, body better than we did 20 years ago, probably mostly because of the national funding that basic science uh, institutes are getting. Uh, I think in in 20 years, we're just going to, the patient will go, or the, any human being will go and we'll get a readout and basically give them a combination therapy, a pill that will address all their needs whether they want to improve their memory because they have Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Um, this therapy will address so many diseases, focusing right now on Alzheimer's, the huge unmet medical need, the huge economical burden that it's currently uh, imposing on the country. The numbers are just, I think, uh, for me, are disheartening. Every 67 seconds in the U.S., someone de develops Alzheimer's. Uh, the numbers, over 5 million people, Patients in the U.S. have Alzheimer's, late-stage Alzheimer's. Uh, Parkinson's, it's not only an uh, old-person disease. Uh, over 10% of the patients are under 45. We are, we are losing patients, their caregivers. I think we need to, to really work hard and, and um, keep the basic science going, but also help, as Matt said, help the development side of 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 uh of the science we need to create more companies that will um uh, help the development of the basic science we expect to be in the clinic for uh this drug our lead compound that is an oral pill goes into the brain brain less invasive than any other technology that is being developed and different than anything in the market because it's not only symptomatic treatment in 2016 and this is because of the support that the basic science got got in washington state university and all the hundreds of scientists that were supported uh this science started 35 years ago in joe harding's lab at washington state university and currently we have a company we have employers and we we're gonna it's helping our, the economy today and it's gonna help patients tomorrow Justin Krepp, who's already talked to us about uh, the the core of his science, um, share with us a little bit about what the, the implications for mapping not only galactic address, but being able to find biomarkers uh, through this kind of telescopic uh, advances uh, in space. Right. So, you know, humans are innately curious and we, and we like to explore. And um, 
just in the last few years, we've learned a lot about the universe. Uh, I, I work with, with NASA and the National Science Foundation, and uh, NASA has launched a mission called Kepler. Have you guys heard of, of Kepler? Kepler has told us that one out of every five stars, if you point to the stars in the, in the sky, has a planet that's comparable in size and even uh, temperature. It's possible climate comparable to that of the Earth, one in five. And that's profound because we know that there are, are 200 billion stars just in the Milky Way galaxy, and there are a trillion galaxies. And so if you're searching for life, the, uh, the, the prospects are, are innumerable, right? Um, and so I, I think the impact is um, uh, astronomy in particular motivates uh, people to get, especially young people, to get involved in, in STEM education. Uh, I know when I do outreach that a lot of folks come up to me afterwards and say, I, I've always loved astronomy. I read about it to this day. My kids are interested in astrophysics. And, you know, those, those people... Um, end up, you know, going to university and they do wonderful things. Uh, and and, and we, we mentor these students and, and the money that, that goes to astrophysics goes directly to supporting uh, our students and postdocs into making these profound um, discoveries. And, you know, we're, we're trying to answer the question, are we alone? This is an age old question that we can actually quantitatively start to address. And when we get the the spectrum of an Earth-like planet orbiting a nearby star, we'll be able to provide some context for our own existence, some galactic context. And uh, I think in 20 years, a new field will emerge, which is astrobiology, the connection between my research and some of the panelists uh, up here. The, the synergies that come from uh, disruptive technology coming together, working together, is one of the things that Ken Hansen has written about at Science 2034. He is, uh, and, and as he's self-described, a, uh, a chemist, uh, somebody who's focused on photovoltaics. But when we start to think about clean energy, sustainable uh, utilization of the sun for energy on a global scale, it, it really brings into sharp focus what impact that can have on transportation and the societal impacts of that. So Ken, assume that a lot of the things that you started to talk about have come true. We are in 2034 and, and give folks an idea of where you think this will lead us as a convergence of technology. So I think there's very little debate that solar cells will continue to be more and more integrated into our lives. There's no question about that. The questions you're left with are, one, where are those solar cells discovered and made for this particular audience? I hope it's in the United States. Uh, the second question is, how do those solar cells converge with other technologies? And so I don't know about you guys, but my vision of 2034 is facilitated by, by both my knowledge of science as well as my day-to-day -day life. And I hate driving absolutely despise it. I think it's a waste of my time and my mental effort. I'm sure many of you agree with me. And so my vision of 2034 is the convergence of apps like Uber, self-driving electric cars, and solar panels. You can envision a society that's basically driven by parking garages filled with electric cars that are being charged by solar panels. You get your Uber app, you say, I want to be picked up. They come pick you up, drop you off where you want to go. They go back to their charging station and recharge. You can basically negate the garage you have, the car maintenance you have to do, even the parking lots. I mean, walk outside. How much land is covered by parking lots that are unnecessary if you no longer have to walk from your car to your office? Instead, just have the automated cars dropping you off. And that's the key of convergent technologies, right? Take the best of every discipline, put them in together in a major way to change the way the world operates.
And, and this is, in many ways, uh, Federico, uh, very similar to where you are with your science in your lab. We're talking about additive manufacturing. But take us into 2034, where we are actually moving out towards Mars, uh, a fixed goal for NASA mm -hmm. and for the, the space exploration complex. How we do what we need to do when we get there is at the heart of your research. Absolutely. And, and so I think... Um we, we want to keep in mind that there are great initiatives now like the NNMIs, the National Network Manufacturing Innovation Institutes. Uh, one is America Makes, um, based in Youngstown, Ohio, which we're members of, um, really supporting the research that we're trying to do to understand this technology. And so, yes, absolutely. What the, the, the aim is that we can now develop systems that will potentially build things in space. So we, we, get to Mars, we need to have these, you know, housing structures or vehicles with the great solar cells that, that uh, you know, we've been developing here thanks to Matt's uh, breakthrough efforts. And so printing up these vehicles in space with the materials that are available there rather than having to transport all these things, which can be quite burdensome. And so I think without the support of those kinds of institutes, uh, you know, it makes it a lot, a lot more difficult, if not impossible, uh, because it's the type of money and funding that only a government can do. One of the things that, that you talked about in your Science 2034 submission was very evocative of what we see today. People, you know, finding uh, 3D CAD drawings of items and printing out a tool you've seen this on YouTube, show of hands, anybody seen this, they're aware. Uh, but the idea is that we may end up in a place where we absolutely can't take all those materials with us. But those natural resources may exist on the moon, on Mars, and utilize them to create things electronically with additive manufacturing is an example of how this may manifest itself just 20 years from now. Um, you know, I see a lot of head nodding here, and we're very excited. We're very lucky, actually, to have all six of these scientists sitting here from their labs. They themselves are distinguished, but they also offer a great deal of uh, mentorship to their students and to keep our scientific enterprise going. And it's a long lead time in basic science, that investment that we're in, or the products of the investment that we're enjoying today came years and years ago. And so the technology that we're thinking about for 20 years hence uh, has deep roots. And I wanna, before we move on to this next section, encourage folks who have questions throughout the rest of Science 2034 Live to raise their hands. We've got microphone and we're gonna move it around. If you have any questions, let me know. Um, and I'll, I'll offer that up now. Does anybody have a question for any of our scientists before we continue forward? Well, let us know if you do. And I, I want Matt Terrell to, to take us to a, a, a different place. Um, it's not all about the money. And, and, and we know that Congress's investment is critically important. And keeping a sustained funding for the research enterprises is what keeps it alive. But what else has to happen for your vision and the visions of the folks at the table to become a reality 20 years from now beyond just the, the federal funding? Well, implicit or maybe even almost explicit in some of the things we've been saying is that the complexity and diversity of skills that are necessary to tackle some of these big problems require uh, multi-investigator centers. The work that we did are doing in this atherosclerosis came out of a Center for Excellence in Nanotechnology sponsored by NIH. 
But going even bigger than that, there's the manufacturing institutes that Federico talked about. There's the national labs. I, I'm a senior scientist at Argonne. Before that, had worked at the Berkeley lab. These are sort of uh, hybrid kinds of institutions where uh, people can, uh, hybrid between universities and industry, where people can really focus on big projects with investments at scale. But the important thing is that there are 20 or 30 people there working on a project, bringing something to that, which is very difficult to assemble at a university. Um, university professors have an entrepreneurial spirit and tend to go in a lot of different directions. National labs help channel efforts in a very effective way. So I think thinking about mechanisms for bringing people together and thinking about educational uh, changes that we have to make that don't just focus on narrow slices of tool sets, but focus on the problems and get engineers and scientists thinking about society and what they can do for it in addition to what tools they bring. I think one of the unique things, so, so I was walking around Capitol Hill this morning before we got here and just thinking about all the history of, you know, people coming here and blazing trails and wanting to make a difference. And that's why we're all here. And I think when we put our collective efforts together, you know, scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, we can really make great things happen in this country. And we've done it before. And so before I was talking about manufacturing, but it's really about making value right and creating new value in this country which will reinvigorate our economy you know we're we're constantly looking for answers and and you know we have societal problems as all countries do but at the end of the day when we start producing things and making value those things don't disappear but they're helped and enabled to 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 be lowered you know basically impacting other people's lives and giving them opportunities and 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 you know i always think and go back to the children and 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 you know especially when we work with disadvantaged children uh, and i and i'm able to show them these technologies that they can actually think of something and then print it and and their eyes just open up and say really and and we go through these very simple uh programs and then they do it and they make something and and the idea of creating and and in and innovating i think is what is at the fundamental crux of what we all do here and what you all do here as well creating new laws and so i think just to kind of wrap that up is just that really it's about coming together as as a country and and making this happen and knowing that we have to do a lot of that on a foundation of basic science that we've we've already mentioned today that you know the discoveries from today started 35 years ago and so imagine what we can do in the next 20 30 40 years um, based on investments today I can't help but to think of, of Silicon Valley when you guys are talking about these things as just an example. We're all explaining what I call a nonlinear effect, which is, you know, an investment then gives you return. And I've got here in my notes, you know, innovation stimulates the economy, creates jobs, lowers crime, lowers poverty. And those people are then able to make sound financial decisions, which gives them a better education, which leads to innovation. And so it just wraps around over and over again, helping to, you know, uh, re replenish that, that whole process. And that is a long-term investment in, in having faith in basic science. And it's been proven over and over and over again, uh, in, you know, in, in the past. And, and Adam organized this committee to, to talk about the future, which is exciting. But it's the same process of innovation helping to create innovation, which has all of, all of these uh, side effects, which benefit us in, in more ways than one. 
I have one additional comment about the innovation. Uh, I think another thing that we need to help basic science is uh, thinking about the intellectual property. There's a lot of intellectual property that comes out from uh, academic institution and research institution. And we need to educate researchers about this aspect of, of, of their uh, development. And, and we need to focus on this and create relationships and collaborations between the private sector and uh, uh, the national s sector to, to help create move these basic science and, and basic ideas into uh, into the translation point where we can actually translate their ideas into uh, products that could help people uh, today and tomorrow. So bringing the message of Science 2034 here to the Hill was important for us as a science coalition. Uh, 60 universities, premier public and private universities who are involved in research around our nation, and for you, in, 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 in the way that you do your jobs, whether your boss or your agency is looking for examples to point to of new laboratory research that point towards a brighter future or is a return on investment that's worth highlighting for other members of Congress or is something that is just not stale with regard to uh, you know the finer points of discretionary spending, that's our job, to bring it forward and help people put a face, a name associated with the greatness that is the scientific enterprise in the United States. And one question that, that we've had answered in a very interesting way from THART leaders, not only members of Congress who have participated, but also university presidents, um, is what's the call to action? There are a lot of young people in this audience today. What makes you do what you do? Uh, and, and I think we've started to touch on it, but I do want to ask all of you, uh, the Sputnik era is over, uh, but we're thinking about new and different types of uh, technologies that are going to give us great uh, enhancement in our lives. What is it that's that pushes you all forward and your labs. Every single person here represents a whole group, a team of postdocs and others who are working uh, and who are funded by our nation's government and the investment in science. So Justin, what pushes you and your team forward? And, and Matt, does that, when you hear this answer, does it, does it sort of, you know, give you a sense that this is very similar to where you were when you got started? There's kind of a theme in our lab, which is origins, and not even just our lab, but all the astronomers and physicists at Notre Dame, um, are, a lot of them are studying uh, the origin of the universe, the Big Bang, you know, how did things get started, uh, and, and in my case, the, the origin of life, trying to get some context for, for how life may be developed here on the Earth. Um, you know, uh, most recently, astronomers have, have discovered with, with the theme of origins, 96% of the universe that we didn't know about. We didn't know about 96% of the universe, and that is dark matter and dark energy. Okay, we still don't know what these things are, and I don't know what the implications are when we ever, we, maybe we can create, you know, maybe Matthew can create a dark matter uh, generator in, in his lab or something. Uh, we don't know what the, what the implications uh, can be, and so that's what gets me excited is, is the unknown, right? I guess that's why I'm an astronomer, but that's the kind of the point is it's unpredictable, but we know that investment uh, in, in this basic research leads to... Um, oftentimes profound things if history is a lesson. 
it's a little different for me. I'm, I'm trained as a chemical engineer and material scientist, and even though I started out by talking about the applications of what we do, what I really like is the uh, creating materials by design, uh, because if you can do that, if you had really uh, powerful principles by which you could you know, uh, create any material you wanted from uh, scratch. There's limitless things that you could do with that. And, and in fact, you, you know, this is uh, another kind of thing that is being taken up by the national laboratories and the materials design lab that uh, Argonne is building and the molecular foundry at Berkeley and so on. But that's the, 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 the ideas of doing architecture at a molecular level is what I really think about on a, on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> So I'm biased in this. I'm an energy researcher, but I think our Sputnik is energy research, right? If you give me unlimited cheap energy, I can do anything. Like- with, with the possible addition of water on top of that, you know, because of the intimate fungibility of uh, well, water and energy. So unlimited energy, I can purify water. Right. In fact, I can give me, a, give me a solar-powered particle accelerator and I will turn lead to gold. Like we, we can do that, right? You want a lightsaber? Give me an unlimited supply of energy. I can build that. I, if you have unlimited energy right now, even with our current technology, you will raise the life expectancy of the planet Earth by 10 years, just redistributing technology that we have available right now. And it's a, a lot of it, it's limited by energy. So that's my bias. But again, I'm a solar cell guy. So you know my perspective. Yeah, for me, I think I'm not about the origin and the future. I'm about the unmet medical need today. So um, I think what's driving us at M3 and Washington State University is that we are all affected directly and indirectly by degeneration, degenerative process, whether it's uh, in neuroscience, which is our main focus, understanding the brain. I think there's a huge mystery there that we need to learn more and just uh, see that Potentially, in a few years, we could impact millions around the world uh, and in the U.S. positively and create a life for them to see energy create gold and (laughs) understand the origin of uh, where everything is is from. So definitely, it's creating a quality of life for uh, patients and their families uh, today and tomorrow. What drives me, and I think really what a lot of us are saying, is that we're going to see challenges as a human population on this globe by the year 2050 and beyond that we we are, haven't ever seen before in terms of sustaining a population, uh, in terms of, I don't know, maybe they're solving some problems over there, I'm not sure, um, but in terms of, of water, food, health, and so a lot of what I do, I think, is, is within that vein of how do we, how are we going to support that population on the planet, and we're only going to do it through innovations and in, 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 in all types of technologies that we've talked about today. The other thing that drives me are my students. I have wonderful students. I have the the you know privilege privilege to work with wonderful undergraduates, fantastic graduate students, and and the research we do is really a conduit to teach those students to go out and solve these world's problems that are that are going to be beyond twenty and thirty years. And so I, I I feel like they are a huge driving force because I am uh, amazed by their energy and their intellect and 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 our research gives them a space to really develop into better engineers and scientists. 
talking about education and opportunities that are, are available for students, what are certain things that are concrete examples that you can give or, that are being done at your university or universities across the nation uh, to really excite students, not not just undergraduates, but um, maybe even students in high school and middle school since they are the, the next researchers and next developers? Right. So right now in my lab this summer, I have two high school students that are paid for through an NSF EPSCoR grant. Um, I also have um, two undergraduates from around the country through an REU program funded by NSF. And then I also have um, undergraduates from my own institution. And, and those are also there during the school year. And so those students are getting hands-on learning experiences that work for the high school students. You know, we're exciting them early and saying, look what you can do with these particular degrees. Um, for the undergraduate students, most of them, um, once they're in my lab, they start to realize that research is actually a job and they could go out and do that. Um, some of them say, please don't ever let me get to the bench ever again. And I say, you know what, that also was a positive learning experience. But um, and so and, and my institution, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, has devoted a lot of money to funding undergraduates. So they actually get paid a stipend to do research with faculty members. And I don't think that's unique. That's that's probably common in many of our institutions um, because they learn they can learn more at my bench in two weeks than I can teach them in two months in a classroom. Does anyone else want to take a whack at that? So me? we had a, a program that we do in the, over the summer called STEM Divas, and uh, they, they actually come in and learn about 3D printing and design their own trinkets and jewelry and, you know, really get excited about the technology, as I said before. Uh, but we also reach out to a lot of high schools, have them come in and do workshops during the semester challenges. Uh, so we're... Have when Nesby. you say them, you're talking about female student population. Female students, yeah, uh, underrepresented minorities. Um, you know, we, we really want to increase that chain because, you know, creativity comes from all walks of life. And so uh, what we try to do over the summer and even during the year is really challenge them to think about, you know, engineering, maybe not as a career, but as something that, that is there that they could do if they want to, not that it's something that they should be afraid of and that, you know, only really smart people do. Another question. Um, hi, um, and thank you all for your time and sharing your expertise. I really appreciate it. My question has to do with um, sort of this breakdown in the science and technology pipeline when it comes to the postdoc position. It seems that many of our postdocs have extended their careers in this position from like two years now to doing two po postdocs up until six, seven, eight years. And we talk about all these great programs <laughs> talk about these great programs where we're engaging in um, minorities with women um, but one thing I don't see is that s support mechanism to help that person leap from that critical postdoc time into some of your, you all's positions that you have now and what we're seeing is that the pipeline is becoming very leaky so does anybody have a solution to that problem <laughs> so I, I actually have a very good solution to this problem because uh, academia basically is pretty full um, and it's really hard to find an academic position after you uh, finish your postdoc. That's why they stay six, seven, and they take it as a career. I'm a postdoc. Uh, I think we have a lot of technologies in the universities, and we need to focus on commercialization, teach, have part of the postdoc curriculum, commercialization, and increase the entrepreneurial spirit in them. Have them take the technology that they worked on, understand it most, and sometimes they understand it more than the professor that they're working with. 
uh, build companies, create this ec- ecosystem around them that support them with legal IP information, uh, starting a company, taking the company which will create their jobs for them, create jobs for the team that they're going to build and, and potentially uh, create uh, technologies that will also go back to the economy and, and, and help uh, the whole cycle. So this is just a question for Mr. Krep. I don't have um, a ton of astrophysicist friends, but hopefully with proper funding that will uh, change. Um, I'm uh, also excited by the prospects of life um, around the universe. And I know your work is primarily focused on discovering um, habitable planets, possibly. Um, but I'm interested as well in the communication um, aspect with the Fermi paradox and how if there was life, perhaps we would have interacted with it already, but we haven't really been looking that long. So I was wondering if you're aware of any just research in that field. Right. So so there's multiple tracks that you could take to, to try to understand life elsewhere. You can try to search. I mean, we find life in the most unexpected places here on Earth, right? The deepest, darkest trenches where there's no uh, light uh, reaching there and it's chemically harsh environments to find these extremophiles, right? And we don't understand them really well. And then, you know, we're searching another... You know, so we don't understand life here on the Earth, first of all. But then, you know, we go and put rovers on Mars to try to search for life. And maybe in the future, we'll go search this uh, moon uh, Europa around Jupiter, where there seems to be uh, maybe liquid water. And I'm taking another path, which is detecting planets orbiting other stars. But yet another complementary way to do that is to, uh, you know, send radio signals out and also to search for the possible signals uh, of uh, extraterrestrial uh, life. And we don't know if we're searching the right way. Uh, we, we, we don't know if, if those other uh, civilizations, um, maybe they choose not to communicate or just simply, you know, patting us. Oh, they, they receive our signal, but oh, they're so cute. You know, the little little earthlings there, they're so far behind. Oh, their planet's only 4.6 billion years old. And so uh, it, it's, it's unclear. There's a lot of uh, ways to attack the problem, and it's extremely interesting. But you're right. We just started. And if we don't look, we're not going to find anything. And so well, let's look. I, I love the topic personally, and, and, and I particularly love the fact that when you talk about it, Justin, you don't immediately talk about finding intelligent life. We're talking with, with extrasolar planets, the idea that they might be inhabitable, the idea that as a species, humans will at some point in the future require uh, spreading out in the galaxy just because of the realities of what's going to happen in the life of our own sun. Um, yeah, I, I scared the last crowd by telling <laughs> them that, you know, the sun is going to expand and engulf Mercury, Venus, and eventually Earth, so we have to move, but it's five billion years from now, so we have some time. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, in, in Washington, we, we only deal with movement during crisis, so we're, we're planning for this one. Were there any other, were there any other questions out there? Because I had one. Uh, for these scientists that I wanted to pose if you didn't. Um, we talk about disruptive technologies and, and the confluence of them. They didn't necessarily have anything to do with one another, but as Ken Hansen describes it, solving one issue along with the development of other new disruptive technologies can lead to a totally social change, uh, not just here, but but worldwide. I think that Lean Kawas, when, she, when she's talking about small molecules, and we're thinking about the, implica- the, the implications on neurodegenerative disorders. Uh, there are a lot of other 
treatment options that exist for brain injury and things that are much closer to us at 2014 uh, out of war and traumatic brain injury. Will you talk for a second about uh, the impact of small molecules and, and generative, regenerative care in general? Yes. So basically, everyone is aging. Uh, there's a lot of degenerative processes that we uh, go every day. Just walking in the street, you are degenerating. So having a small molecule that is affordable, we're not talking about drilling the patient's head. There are therapeutic options today that the patients are desperate. They want to have a normal life. So they go and have an in invasive surgery over 100,000 of, of expenses and they don't even go back to normal uh, function, but they, they want to feel that they are they still have some control on their life. Uh, small molecule therapies that are feasible, accessible to everyone, which is gonna relieve the patients and the economy uh, in the form of a pill that they take with their food and they this induces regeneration of the neuron, producing new connections in the brain cells that they lost. Uh, they regain their life, they regain their function and they without having to spend hundreds of million or go through invasive therapies. I just wanted to comment about one thing that Adam said and kept talking about is, is the under connecting two uh, different disciplines and empowering uh, a combination of both. Um, another thing that we're trying to achieve is empowering patients. Uh, we are talking about therapies that are accessible to patients, but not the Physicians are not accessible to patients 24-7. So I think the overlap between technology, wearable devices, just the mass information that we could get from the tech field, combining it with the life science, and I'm wearing one, and uh, the life sciences, I think will create the empower the patient and empower uh, therapeutic development. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I thought it was a good lead-in to something I wanted to say that, that hasn't come up yet. I mean, the thing that's sure to change in the next 20 years is the way we do computing. First of all, we're investing more and more, and we need to invest more and more in powerful computers. Argon just installed uh, in collaboration or just uh, initiated in collaboration with Intel and Cray, the first nearly exascale computer that's a, a billion, billion floating point operations per second. And we can go farther, but Moore's law will end in the next 20 years. We can't keep making transistors smaller and smaller. So something drastic is going to happen. And we want to keep making computers smaller, uh, uh, sorry, faster, smaller in some cases, uh, certainly more powerful because questions in healthcare and biology and material science and climate and so on can be largely computed with, with some reliability now. And, and that's going to be very important. Yes, definitely. So use the computational power that we have, the genomics, proteomics, we could predict uh, diseases, we could predict degeneration, and we could precisely prescribe the therapy that is specific to this person instead of just give, giving a generic therapy that we hope that it's going to work for everyone because I am different than Angie and Angie, and, and we respond differently to therapies. We're trying 
with the research that we're doing to have an umbrella that would cover most patients. But I think computational science should help life sciences and other sciences, of course. I, I want to get Ken Hansen in here because when we start talking about Moore's Law uh, and the development of, of a next generation, uh, I think that your response to where we're going and where we might find ourselves in 2034 with regard to your science is truly fascinating. So I'm not going to talk in terms of Moore's Law necessarily, but I think the informatics, the computer processing is going to be key to everything before 2034. So to put this in perspective, every second, an hour of YouTube video is uploaded. Like we are in the information age. There's no question about that. Most of that information is noise. And so the hard part is we can't sort through that information. And all our disciplines, I work in dye-sensitized solar cells, which is a very specific subset of solar cell research. There's 50 to 100 publications per week on that topic, and I cannot read through that information. And so I think one of the major steps forward in all of our disciplines is as soon as computers can start processing imagery and text and start cutting through the noise and figuring out real what's valuable in that information, it will find things that we have never thought of. It will see patterns that we couldn't possibly. And I think that's going to be profound implications in the next 20 years. And there is one very uh, exciting, although still somewhat uh, iffy, potential answer to this, and that is the switching from digital computation to quantum computation. Mm -hmm. Digital computation is based on switches, you know, just on or off, and you do it uh, a billion, billion times a second. If one can access quantum mechanical states like the spin of an electron in solid materials, then you have qubits that are capable of having 10,000 states or 100,000 states in one object. And so the abilities for storage and computation and other things become much greater. Nobody, well, there's, a, there's one company that claims to have built a quantum computer, but it's not replacing everything in the world just yet. But I'm just telling, there could be some revolutionary changes in computing. You know, quantum mechanics is uh, very difficult to develop physical intuition about because it's based on probabilities rather than on deterministic uh, events. Like a transistor, you can tell if it's on or off. What you say about a qubit is that it could be on or off or some combination of the two. And, <laughs> and that last phrase <laughs> loses people. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, as, as, the, uh, as certain applications of the technology get more uh, developed, then we'll learn how to talk about it. Uh, Quantum computers may or may not exist already. What is being used is cryptography, uh, sending secure signals right. between you and your bank and that sort of thing. So there are uh, areas where I think this will start to become more familiar, but yeah. uh, it's a little hard to get beyond the mysticism of quantum mechanics right now. And I think, you know, science 2034, maybe 2084, I don't know. I mean, it's got to be a dialogue, and it's great that you asked that question because we may not know, and, and, and we, so we have to bring other people together to the table, and they don't have to be experts in quantum mechanics, right? They may have expertise in other areas, and it's really just on the discussion aspect. I mean, many times, you know, we, we had talked before about how we're always, you know, uh, working or trying to do research, but then we have, you know, our academic requirements. But if when I have an hour of time that I can spend in my lab with my students and talk to them and ask these kinds of questions, that's when things really happen. So if I have the opportunity to sit with these individuals and then, you know, as you're talking, your brain is kind of doing all these things because, you know, the brain's such a powerful thing. Um, you know, that's really how it happens is 
continuing this dialogue. So keep asking those questions to everyone you see, and eventually we'll find out the answer. I guarantee you that. And, and that's another thing, the importance of uh, federal funding is that it's an open source for every everyone. So when we are funded through NIH, SFN, we have to publish our data, we have to share our knowledge. I think that's another thing that um, is not having a lot of people know a lot of things and they don't publish but when we we're funded by federal funding we have to share our knowledge and communicate with so with if it. i could just say that again so we just got uh, last year got funded by nist uh for this measurement science and additive manufacturing uh we were very grateful for that funding and so i've been working with industry i put together an industrial advisory board to say Whatever we do out of this, we want to make sure you can understand it and take it to that next level. Because if I don't get funding, I don't want it to just die or end up, you know, on a, just a paper or in some computer. I want someone to take it and say, this is great. We're going to go with it and we're going to make something happen of that. So I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure, as you say, that it's communicated in some fashion. So it may be easier for me because I'm trying to build things and, you know, nano, you know, and, and all that stuff is a bit more complex. You know, I think that it's it's important to note from a Capitol Hill perspective that this is something that members of Congress care deeply about. I know that uh, university presidents do as well. The Science Coalition produces as a resource for folks here on the Hill a sparking economic growth report, which just pulls out specific examples of technologies that have been spun out of universities that have launched uh, entrepreneurial uh, endeavors that are building the economy locally, that are working together hand in hand. And this, like Science 2034, the resources that we're glad to be able to bring up here for all of you to think about and use as a resource when you're trying to put a face uh, against that newest technology and, and giving it some voice. Uh, one of the things that I think we've learned today, I know I have, is that it's quite inspiring to, to have these kind of scientists from different disciplines sitting together and sharing and starting to build relationships and thinking about how each's work can help the other. Um, and with that in mind, I, I want to ask perhaps a, a closing question for the entire panel. Uh, before I do, I'll ask if anyone else has a question that they wanted to get in. Um, will you talk for a second about what might be possible even before 34? There are things that we have written about that, that people can see that are very high-minded, that, that are absolutely attainable, but there are smaller steps along the way that are going to be headlines when they come. And so let's finish off on something that's really tangible. Uh, Frederico, why don't you take that yeah, one? Yeah, well, I, I can point to GE, and they are actually 3D printing a leap fuel nozzle for their next generation engine, and they plan on producing 20,000 of those per month in the next five to 10 years. So that additive technology that we're doing needs to be up to speed on that. And so they have it down and they'll get it done. But I mean, so now what was one 20 parts for them, now they can print it in one part. So it makes them become more efficient, you know, in terms of logistics and all these things. But it's now creating this, what I was saying, the value, adding value to making these new parts. How about you, Matt, on the way to that uh, inevitable heart attack? What's going to happen before <laughs> we get there? I, I think of something from, uh, from Lean's uh, town uh, led by Lee Hood, which he calls uh, 4P medicine. That's right. Uh, and I think that's not going to take 20 years to uh, be realized. Uh, 4P 
predictive, participatory, personalized, and something else. Um, but it's you know where where it's based on data that you can anticipate things. It's about your data, uh, and you play a role in deciding what you're going to do about mm -hmm. your data. So, per, so the fourth P is personalized. Yeah. Predictive, yeah. personalized, preemptive, and participatory. Preemptive. I did my homework. Preemptive. Yeah. That's yeah. the one I didn't get. So yeah. So, yeah. How about you, Angie? Well, and. I, I said I work in, in tissue engineering and, and gene delivery. In tissue engineering, I think we're before 2034, we'll see stem cells as a therapy. We already see it in clinic, uh, preclinical and clinical trials. I think we'll see stem cells as a viable option uh, clinically. In terms of DNA delivery, we already have some DNA vaccines that have been approved um, for veterinary use. So I think we'll start to see some DNA vaccines for human use. We It'll take us longer to get the oral route figured out, I believe. So... DNA as a treatment, we're talking about for molecular diseases. So this has applications, therapeutics for cancer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you can actually develop DNA vaccinations for cancers where you actually make the body do all the work to get rid of the tumor and, and use the body's immune response against that. Mm -hmm. And you, Justin? Um, we're going to discover an Earth twin by 2020. That's my prediction. Now, can you help us define that? When you say Earth twin, we're talking about a third rock from another sun. It may not be the. It, it may not be the third, but it will be in the Goldilocks region. That's not too hot and not right. too cold. About the right size. It will have an atmosphere, and it will be a really intriguing uh, detection. And we'll want to characterize it uh, ever more closely. And Ken Hansen. So I'm going to step outside of my wheel well on a little bit of this and talk about Angie's expertise. I'm, I'm excited about lab-grown meats. Like, <laughs> That's also I'm, tissue engineering. I'm 100% positive. Um, this is going to happen. In fact, there are startup companies right now that grow lab meat in Petri dishes. And so from an energy perspective, right, this is conservation of energy. This is resources. This is not wasting water on generating bones and tissue. It's a much more efficient way to produce meat that's much safer for everyone. And so don't be surprised if in 10 years, McDonald's is feeding you a Petri dish of meat. There's a great Doesn't video on PBS about it. <laughs> well, you know, and people have been writing science fiction novels about all of this as prescient as it is for more than 50 years. And I love to think about that and I love to read it. But I, what I love more is being able to really think about what is truly going to be possible, what is made possible by the U.S. federal government's investment in basic scientific research. We can't forget that that's how we got here and that's how we're going to get where we're going. We hope you carry that back to your offices because without you, without this building that we're in and all that surround it, these discoveries and these improvements are going to be taking place in other countries and not developing our economies the way that we'd like to. So with that, I'd like to close out Science 2034 Live and thank you all for being here. Thank you.